0: dietitians and nutritional counseling is one of the fundamental pillars of eating disorders treatment. And if we can't pay for that, if a patient can't pay for that, they're not getting a central component of what they need to become well. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned
1: RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders. To those of
2: us who have been around for a while, I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor.
1: And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer
2: to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast-iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an
1: Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet
2: is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Dear eating disorders professionals, thank you for joining us with Dr. Cynthia Bulick. She is clinical psychologist and founding director of the University of North Carolina Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders. And I'm not going to go into her full bio. It is in the show notes because I really want you to just dive in and listen to what she has to share with us today. I'm putting out a challenge to all of us to get your folks to volunteer for this genetics research. Super important for us to keep learning and eventually, as she said, put ourselves out of business. Wouldn't it be nice, instead of filling our offices with people who are struggling with eating disorders that we are working more on prevention. So we are also joined by Dr. Michaela Voss, who you'll get to meet next week more intimately in her own episode, But both are kicking off the medical series for the seasoned RD, and we will, October-November of 2021, be bringing to you different medical doctors in the field of eating disorders. And we had so many wonderful guests that we will probably do a second medical series um, early 2022. So please do uh, listen in. There's a nugget for you. If you have not heard the card analogy that helps describe some of the genetics to our our clients and patients, I believe this is something that you could use often in your work. Well, hello. We are here today with Dr. Cynthia Bulick. Oh, starstruck, thank you for joining us so much.
0: It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me today.
2: And our co-host, Dr. Michaela Voss. Who you will hear about in a previous in an episode before we release this one, because we are having some medical episodes coming up and would love to have her join us. So I'd like for you to all meet Dr. Michaela Voss in a more intimate way as we move forward.
0: So Hello, thanks thank for you. inviting me.
2: Thank you for joining us. Oh my gosh, this is gonna be great. Okay. So Dr. Bulik, we have a few icebreakers before we get into some of the program. Mountains or beach?
0: Oh, mountains. Really? Absolutely. Yeah? In fact, going there in a couple days. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Ah. Yeah. As a a freckled redhead, lots of sun doesn't really work for me. So I'm all about the mountains and hiking.
2: I love, I'm a mountains person too. I'm just drawn to that. I'm not a big fan of the the sand and I love the sound of the waves, Mm. but I really love, I don't know, it feels really peaceful in the mountains for some reason. I agree. What about this one?
0: Breakfast or dinner? Totally breakfast. <laughs> in fact, like the more berries on my cereal, the better. So, summer breakfast on the porch is what I'm after. Valuing
1: the, the mountains.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> I can picture that and
2: I'm already relaxed. <laughs> All right. And the last icebreaker is audiobook or paper book?
0: You know, that I think I'm in transition. How's that sound? It's like I'm definitely in transition. I love. The written word, so I think I would have to say, paper book, on a Kindle. <laughs> yeah, because you can highlight word. different
2: things still and go back to it. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, I'm going to take you back, and hopefully, this is not too traumatizing to ask this question. But to any board exam that you've had, <laughs> and was it was it paper? Was it computer? What do you remember
0: about that day? Oh my God. What if we go back to my PhD defense? Okay. So my chair, who was an amazing man, he had had polio as a child, had multiple physical problems, including throat cancer, got hospitalized the night before in the ICU. And we had practiced sort of going into the room where this defense usually happens and we're allowed to bring in a safe person, you know, a colleague. So I was all ready to go. I get this call. Shelly's in the hospital. And I'm like, oh. Pooh, we're gonna have to, you know, put this off. He calls me up and he says, We're gonna do your defense in the hospital. So my whole committee, my safe person, trucked down. They just discharged him from the ICU and I did my defense in his hospital room. I <laughs> have never heard of something like that. That is dedication. It was I, I, and, and that is one of the things I learned from him. He was so dedicated as a mentor and you know to do that he he was just like there's no way we're postponing this and bring a bottle of champagne i was like all right
2: <laughs> <laughs> i love that that is a unique story i've never heard that before and it is dedication well, and good. I wonder
0: though if that would even be able to be possible these days. Oh yeah, no, absolutely not. Right yeah. with COVID, there are no visitors. Would have a Zoom. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've done so many Zoom defenses this year, and I just feel so bad because there's something about being in the room with your mentors and the party after. Sweden has these huge parties after people finish their PhDs, and no one's been able to do it, and it's uh-huh. super sad. Yeah.
2: Well, for people who don't understand your relationship to Sweden, what is that?
0: So I am in an extremely fortunate position where the Swedish government, the Swedish Research Council, which is sort of like their National Institute of Health, gave me a grant for 10 years that allows me to be at UNC, University of North Carolina, 50% of the time and at Karolinska Institute at 50% of the time. So I've got a research team in North Carolina, and I've got another research team in Sweden, and we sort of have built this research bridge across the two countries. And, you know, thank you, Sweden, for having the foresight to give this amazing grant to basically let me do what I need to do to advance the field over 10 years, which just doesn't happen here. We don't get 10-year grants in the United States.
2: That's amazing. And I was fortunate to be able to watch your keynote at the IADEP symposium and, and also watched you speak on Sondra Kronberg's morning side chats there. You revealed that it was so hard to get people into the sandbox uh, to do, to give grants like people. What was that journey of getting people to understand that genetics does make a difference?
1: No,
0: the great story. I mean, I think there are two layers of an answer to that. One is just how hard it is to get grants, period. And the second one is how hard it is to get genetic, get the genetic research funded that we did. And, you know, when I first tried to get money to study the genetics of eating disorders, you know, my mentors and the people I was working with were like, you know, if there's any psychiatric disorder that isn't genetic, it's eating disorders. They're like, it's all about environment and family and social pressures to be thin. And I was like, mm, I'm not thinking that's true. And, you know, if there's one quality that I have, it's persistence. So I just kept pecking and pecking and pecking <laughs> until, until we got enough pilot data and information that these illnesses run in families. And they run in families because of genetics. And then finally, you know, different organizations came to the party and funded the research.
2: Mm, I'm so grateful for your
0: persistence. Dr. Voss has her hand raised. (laughs) Yes. Is there a particular
1: reason that you focused on Sweden or did Sweden kind of come after you?
0: Both of those things are true. I've actually been collaborating with them sort of like in an unfunded way. We've had some National Institute of Health grants probably over the last 20 years. And it's because everything in their medical system is so well documented. So everything you do, every time you go to a doctor, every time you get a diagnosis, every time you go to the hospital, when you die, it all goes into a register. And then those registers are available for researchers to use. So for example, I had this sort of like weird headache thing and I had to get hospitalized in Sweden for it oh, two years ago now, I guess. And I got all excited because all of a sudden I was in like the registers. It's like, yes, I'm contributing to research too. And, and that's just the, the general feeling that Swedes have. It's like whatever my body and my mind can tell you about public health, I want to be part of that. So it's it's so different than here with like please sign this at HIPAA and this HIPAA and that HIPAA and whatever you know everything's private and secret. Nobody wants to share. So it's been a joy to work. In, well, actually, we work with the Swedish registers, the Danish registers, the Norwegian registers. The you know it's Scandinavia. It's just a different mindset
2: all of this research and we're going to have you talk a little bit more about the genetics research, but you are able to bring this to a level for us clinicians. And I've been in the field almost 30 years. So back in the day, it was a whole like, that parents were to blame not necessarily. Let me let me reframe this. When the 9 truths came out and then the science behind the 9 truths, which is a large document that's well cited, we used to think that parents were the problem. And so we would try to separate, but we now know they're the best they can be the best ally in treatment. Another thing that I've learned over the years just from my own experience and when the 9 truths came out, just blew my mind, and I still use it and brought the nine truths into the core courses for certification, so important, and we wove those through the overview and the medical and the nutrition and the therapy, all of the nine truths in there was all, all body sizes. Have eating disorders. Right. All cultures have eating disorders. When I worked at the children's hospital, it was no longer considered to be that middle, upper class, white female. There are so many cultures that are affected by eating disorders. So thank you for the nine truths. And we are putting that into the show notes for any clinician who's thinking about working in eating disorders or already is and hasn't heard about it. Oh, it it is groundbreaking.
1: From our perspective, those of us that have trained a little bit later, and are newer to the field, the nine truths is is just the staple, it's the standard, you know, we don't know it any different way. And so also the contribution that that's made to really just change the whole outlook of training and educating us as well. It's been amazing.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's great. You know, I gave that talk up at NIMH, and had no idea that was ever going to become a thing. You know, and then all of a sudden, you know, there's this talk that's recorded and then we turn it into the nine truths. I think it's like into 26 languages now, you know, we just and looked it up. It was yeah. everything you could imagine. Yeah, it's it's amazing. In fact, we're, we're doing this now and I know we'll get into some of the ongoing research, but we're contacting a whole bunch of people who are Spanish speakers, who are personalities in Latin America, Spain, and we're having them record the nine truths in Spanish because we're really trying to sort of reach out with our genetic research to Latin America as well. And, you know, there are still so many just untruths that are out there. And the more we can get people who have broader reach than we do to sort of talk about these truths, the more that we're gonna be able to disseminate, you know, the reality. And, and you know, it's like, we're, we're known in our field, But our field is like this microcosm of the world, whereas like an actor or, you know, a sports legend or a Formula One racer, they just have like reach that we could never hope for. So we need to engage them and build this community so that we can just really get the truths out there.
2: Is there a favorite truth that you have?
0: (laughs) No, looking at them right now and honest to goodness, I think the one that's most important is actually number five. Which is the one that you've already mentioned, which is eating disorders affect people of all genders, ages, races, ethnicities, shapes and weights, sexual orientations and socioeconomic statuses. Because the reason it's my favorite, not because it's necessarily my research area, but because I think that's the one of which the untruth has done the most harm. Eh, tied with families. See, I I can't give you a favorite. There are just so many reasons that I'm attached to so many of them. They're
2: all over. I mean, you could have probably written 109 truths, right? So I wanted to go back because you used an acronym NIMH, and I know what that means,
0: but for our listeners, that was about 2014 that you... Good question. Maybe 13, 14. Yeah. So it was a, a talk that I gave at the National Institute of Mental Health, which is one of the National Institutes of Health that does the most grant giving for the field of eating disorders. Thank you.
2: And I used an acronym, IADEP International Association of Eating Disorders Professionals. So tell us about your research.
0: So there's so much. And one of the reasons that I love my job is every day is different. So you know, the research that I've been doing over the past 30 plus years ranges all the way from animal models of eating disorders to developing and disseminating new treatments, to basic biological research. And right now, a lot of our energy is going toward genetic research. So- we have this big study going on now called the Eating Disorders Genetics Initiative, or EDGY, um, because we're on the cutting edge um, of research. Yes, I, know. I love acronyms. That's like, I need to. One of my superpowers is like coming up with a, with a steady <laughs> acronyms. But what I really love about this is the NIMH, we know what that is now, is funding this research in the United States, Denmark, New Zealand, and Australia. Sweden is funding an independent study. Also, they're all called EDGY. The, the United Kingdom, is, has their own edgy. We're starting up in Mexico. We're starting up in Taiwan. We're starting up in the Netherlands, in Italy. So we're doing this sort of like just global reach with the goal being to make sure we get as many possible people and as diverse of a sample as possible to participate in this research. Because only by doing that, will we be able to understand whether the same genetic factors actually influence men and women, people of African ancestry or European ancestry. And we need these really large samples because people don't realize this, but there's never gonna be like one or two big genes that influence eating disorders. There are gonna be thousands of genes, each of which have a fairly small effect. And they act and interact with each other And they act and interact with environmental factors in order to, you know, sort of like define what an individual's risk profile is. So, you know, I know it sounds like global domination, but we are really trying (laughs) to get edgies up and running in as many possible countries as we can. And within countries, making sure that we're getting a representative sample of the, the cultures and the people who exist within that country as well.
1: What else are you collecting besides the genetic data?
0: So it's actually, we've we've broadened out. We had done a previous study called ANGIE, which was just the Anorexia Nervosa Genetics Initiative that only looked at anorexia. And Edgy is trying to do two things. You know, one, we're looking at anorexia, bulimia and binge eating disorder. And in some of the other countries that have independent funding, we're also able to do a typical anorexia nervosa and some of the other sort of EDNOS or OSFED. So again, to get those abbreviations out there, sort of like other presentations of eating disorders that don't fall into those three categories. As well as ARFID, we're getting avoidant restrictive food intake disorder online as well. But we know that eating disorders don't exist in a vacuum. So we're also, everything's done online. So people just have to go to edgy.org and they sign up. And then there's a whole list of questionnaires that cover everything from like your mood and how anxious you are, What kind of life events you've experienced, your use of drugs and alcohol, how much exercise you engage in, any obsessional tendencies you might have, because we know that especially anorexia nervosa and obsessive compulsive disorder often go hand in hand. And then we send you a little spit kit. So you get this little kit in the mail and you say it has a step-by-step sort of how you do it. You spit into it, screw it back in, pop it back in the mail in a prepaid envelope. It's super easy. It's COVID safe. You can do it all within the privacy of you and your computer, but it'll give us enough information that it's not just a genetic study. It really is a genes and environment study, and it'll help us unpack not just the genetic factors that influence risk for eating disorders, but also why you might also be depressed or why you might also be anxious. And that's really the goal, a very comprehensive, broad-based study of genes and environment. Is there an age group that you're focusing on? At this point, we're looking at 18 plus, but as with any study, you have to get approval from the ethics committee for whatever age groups you want to do. So we're literally in the middle of getting approval to go down to 15. But to do that, we'll also have to have parents consent to participate. And in some of the other countries, they already have approval to go down to some to 15, some to 13, depending on the country.
2: So if we're working with kids, we can af- ask the parents if they're interested in con- contributing to the study, if they have admitted or revealed that they have had an eating disorder or Absolutely. anyone in their
0: family. So. Absolutely. Any, you know, any, anyone is fine. And, you know, hopefully within, by September or October of 2021, we'll have approval to go down to age 15. So then we will be able to have children enrolled in edgy in the U.S., That's fantastic. So again, bringing
2: it back down to the clinician level, the ace of spades, clubs, hearts, and diamonds example that you bring to us, I have drawn that on a whiteboard in my office. I've probably butchered the way that I explain it to people. I know this is a podcast and people can't see it, but is there a
0: way you could describe that? Yep, I sure can. So the reason that I tried to come up with something simple like this is because patients were coming into our office and saying, okay, I hear there's a genetic component to eating disorders. What does that mean for me now? Like, you know, they hear that eventually this will help us develop new medications or new treatments, but they want to know like today with my child or with me, what does it mean? And I, I really sort of racked my brain to figure out how can I illustrate this? And I figured everybody has experience with a deck of cards and we know there are four suits. And so each one of the suits I break down into either risk factors or protective factors. And the way I like to do it is, so let's start with spades. They're black and those are the genetic risk factors So that's what we're looking at with EDGY, sort of like, what are the combinations of genes that increase your risk of developing an eating disorder? But there are also genetic protective factors. And I say the clubs are the genetic protective factors. And these are genes or gene combinations that we haven't identified yet that might neutralize some of those genetic risk factors or give you so much of another trait that protects you against the development of eating disorders, all on the genetic level. For those two black suits, there's nothing we can do about them yet. We can't change your genes. And that's not where we're going, but it does help us understand risk. But on the other side are those two red suits. So the diamonds I talk about as environmental risk factors. So these are things we read about a lot. It can be, it can be teasing or bullying. It can be going on that first diet. It can be the societal pressures to be thin, whatever might send you down the path of engaging in a behavior that might activate some of your genetic risk factors. And we can do something about those. The other part, the last one are the hearts and they're a red suit as well. And those are the environmental protective factors. And that's whatever we can do on an environmental, a family, a behavioral level to buffer against some of those environmental and genetic risk factors. And right now, the only two things we can do anything about are the red suits, the hearts and the diamonds. And as clinicians, our goal is to try to decrease those diamonds, the environmental risk factors, and increase the hearts or the environmental protective factors. And it really is on an individual level, it's whatever cards you get dealt. You look at your hand and you have this relative amount of spades and clubs and hearts and diamonds. And then as a clinician, it's how can we deal you some better cards to really make your deck more protective for you in the long run.
2: This is like, I love it. I love it. I'm embarrassed to even show you what my whiteboard looks like, but I mean, <laughs> it, it is. It's the same thing. And every single client that I share it with can really appreciate it. And I appreciate the ability to bring that to them in a way that allows them to say, like you said, how does this affect me? And what I didn't get the part before about whatever cards you get dealt, But that Mm. is the truth. We don't have control over our genetics. Yeah.
0: And, And that's actually another little piece that I think is really important for parents to hear is we don't have control over which egg comes down the pike or which sperm is the best swimmer. That's just going to happen. And we don't want parents to feel guilty about that. You know, they've gone through so many decades about feeling guilty about their parenting because of these myths. We don't need genetic guilt. We just need to focus on you're dealt what you're dealt, and that's what you got to deal with, and we're going to work with what you have, what you bring to the table biologically, and we're going to really work on those environmental levels because that's what we can do.
2: You know, uh, what do you think is the genetic percentage contribution to eating disorders.
0: So the answer to that is complicated. So we've done twin studies around the world which suggests that the heritability is probably around 50 to 60%, meaning that the transmissibility in families is due to genetic factors for about 50 to 60% of the liability. That does not mean that 50 or 60% of the cases are genetic and the rest of them are environmental. It means in everybody there's a somewhat of a genetic component. And on average, it's about 50 or 60%. Um, So it's not a hundred percent, meaning that environment does play a role. Environment is not off the hook by any stretch of the imagination. Dr. Voss has her hand raised again. So I have to
1: admit, I had not heard this card analogy and I absolutely love it. So thank you for sharing that. And hopefully that'll reach some of us newer clinicians as well. I, I would like to understand within the analogy, if you are dealt 70, 80% of your genetics, is it possible based on your research that we can add to those cards? Because I know we can't replace the genetics or is it more of, well, your eating disorder is only 20% and that's uh, environmental. So we only have 20% of work we can do. Does that No, make sense? absolutely. No,
0: no, no, no. Okay. So I'm not real good at different card games, so I can't think of the right analogy, but your deck can get, or your hand, the number of cards you have can get longer. It can get larger, right? It's not like there's a finite number of cards. Like we can add in more hearts, more environmental protective factors. We can remove more diamonds or minimize the effect on them. So let's just, let's talk real concretely. So let's just say that someone comes to you, and when they go back and talk about the origins of their eating disorder, they remember it starting by going to a doctor's office, standing on the scale, and the doctor saying, you need to lose weight, without ever asking them whether they have disordered eating behaviors. And that triggered their first extreme diet, which triggered their eating disorder. Now, we can't remove that memory, but we can change the way the person responds to that memory. And that's adding hearts to the deck by minimizing the effect of that particular diamond. And that's really, I mean, that's what psychotherapy is. It's helping us give, you know, new ways to process information that has damaged us in the past. And I always talk about moments like that as being Velcro moments, you know, these comments like, you know, teasing or, you know, saying you have to lose weight or bullying or a cat call, whatever it is, you know, they stick to us like Velcro. If only compliments that people gave us would stick to us as well, but they don't. Like, you know, compliments tend to drip off like oil off a duck's back, whereas insults and harassments, they stick to us like Velcro. So it really is dealing with those that history of Velcro comments and giving you a new way to process them, a way to remember that they're there, but put them on a shelf so they don't influence your behavior as much every day.
1: One of the reasons I love this so much is because how well it connects on the medical side, we're always focused on the heart and healing the heart and getting it strong and healthy. And so what a perfect analogy Uh, to connect your mental health and your physical health.
0: Right. No, I think that's super. And and that's one of the things that, you know, I also really try to work with, with people to think through is not make that dividing line between mental health and physical health. And I think in some ways, the pandemic has made people more aware of the extent to which their mental and physical health is intertwined. You know, as so many people have developed or their anxiety disorders have been exacerbated, you know, we're seeing more disorders of the gut brain axis. We're seeing a lot more GI complaints. People are just, I mean, people don't even realize how stressed they are. And that's manifesting itself, not only in mental symptoms, but also in physical symptoms at this point. Definitely.
2: Yeah. Oh, I love that, Dr. Voss, with the whole, you know, the heart and healing the heart. And that is one one thing in malnutrition regardless of size that we see is a bradycardia or some kind of a malnutrition right that their heart is is suffering from not getting enough nutrients and as a dietitian i'm squarely in the middle Of that, uh, the medical and the psychological, and a lot of insurance companies won't cover dietitian services and eating disorders because we only get covered typically for heart disease, kidney disease, and then weight management. (laughs) And I refuse to do the whole BMI, anyways. Yeah. Um, And then with the psychological piece, that is a truly biopsychosocial illness. And that's why for those who become certified, they are required to take all four core courses of the overview and diagnostics. Dietitians don't diagnose. We can diagnose malnutrition, but not eating disorders. And then the therapeutics, we expect the medical doctors to know about the therapeutics. And then the the nutrition, we expect the therapist to know about the medical and the medical to know about the therapy. All of it is biopsychosocial. Yes.
1: To be separating out the body in those different components in the first place just seems silly these days, right? How your mental health and your physical health, it's still your whole body. You're all interconnected. So right. I love that you guys do that.
2: And a lot of our clients like to go into black and white thinking. And mm-hmm. so the card analogy also helps bring in that there are just like, there's there's a lot unknown and an example I can use is if someone if um, someone is taking a vitamin supplement a multivitamin and we're always taught let's try real food first because there are components in that food that we don't know could be protective or there that we can't isolate everything and put it into a pill for you. Oh velcro moments. <laughs> That's definitely the therapy part. But then the Velcro moments within all of the foods and the judgments that people receive about what they've chosen to eat. So but the 50 to 60 percent heritability. And I'm going to have to wrap my brain around that whole other piece because uh, I don't As, as just kind of a commoner, (laughs) when I hear 50 to 60%, my mind goes to, well, that means that if my, one of my parents has anorexia nervosa, that I have
0: a 50% chance of getting it. That is not true whatsoever. Because two things you have to remember. First off, let's say one of your parents had anorexia nervosa. That parent only contributed 50% of your genome. The other parent contributes the other 50%. And that other 50% might have a bunch of those clubs or genetic protective factors that balances out or dampens down your genetic risk. The the numbers aren't like that at all. But that said, there's a a whole field, and, and we need to train more people in this, and I'm working on it, of genetic counseling. You know, so for example, you know, people with Huntington's, people with type one diabetes, you know, when they're ready to have children, they go to a genetic counselor, they get great feedback about what their children's risk is, you know, and it really helps them make reproductive decisions. Psychiatric genetic counseling is a wonderful field. There are some great people in it, but they've only started to think about eating disorders but the number of people that come into our clinic who are in their reproductive years, who are saying, should I have children? Should I not have children because I had an eating disorder and they don't have anyone to go to. So this afternoon, after I talk with you, I'm actually having a conversation with a colleague about putting in a grant to develop a genetic counseling curriculum so that we can actually train um, psychiatric genetic counselors to talk about eating disorders. So we can send our patients to them and they can talk through these having the right numbers and not just the fear. Cause we did one little study that showed that 100% of people overestimated the genetic risk to their children.
2: Oh, and
0: these what? were people with eating disorders the fear is huge. It's huge. And, and, and that's why people participate in research too. I mean, the people who have participated in our genetic research tell us I'm doing this because I don't want anyone else to ever go through what I went through. And that's what the people who are entering their reproductive years are feeling. It's like, I don't want to bring a kid into this world if they're going to have to go through an eating disorder. Um, but then, of course, the fear is much bigger than the reality in terms of the risk to offspring. And that's why we have to get this pr- profession involved. And then you can have it in another list of people in IADEP who can be trained in all of these different you know, domains that are so important. Exactly. So we're working on that,
2: one, Beth. I was going to say. I mean, I can picture the card analogy as the genetic counselor right. using that because the, there's only one fourth of that that is even, you know, a ri- that that great. is genetic risk. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the ace of spades. Yeah. So, and then there were some quotes around, and and these are old. I like things tend to take a life of their own. One example that I used in a previous podcast episode was that eating disorders were considered the deadliest, highest mortality rate of any mental health illness. And that has shifted around 2014-ish or to 16 that we understand with substance use and opioid. And that's that's what we consider to be the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. So people get stuck on statistics and the 85% genetic is what sticks in my head, and I don't even know where that came from. Now I know more like fifty to sixty percent. Right.
0: Yeah, and you know, and it's not a race. You know, it, it, the, the mortality rate. It's not like you know who, which disorder can be worst. You know, it's right. like it, so. I've just switched to saying is amongst the most deadly. Um, That's yeah, yeah, because I mean the the opioid epidemic. It, it's terrible. It's unconscionable, and it's almost shameful that we're in that situation. And I mean, I can't get past the fact and there's going to be a paper, a sort of an opinion piece coming out on on this in September. I can't get past the fact that people still die from anorexia. It, it infuriates me and, you know, back to heart health, you know, it, and, and I've said this out loud before, and I'll say it again. It, it chips away at my heart every time I'm on Facebook and I see another parent post a picture of their child that has died. It it makes me just so angry that I've been in this field for you know as long as you Beth maybe longer, and we're not doing better. It's... That's why I, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. You know, it's like we need to we need to stop this, and we need more money to do it. We need everybody to go to edgy.org and spit for us, <laughs> you know, so that we can solve this problem and really change things because yeah. I want to put myself out of business. Me too. I really do. Nothing that, that would make me happier. But unfortunately, the need is still so great. And, you know, what we've seen in the pandemic is the need has mushroomed and the, the mental health tail to this pandemic is going to far outlast the physical tail which is, which is frightening, but we're unprepared for it. From your experience,
1: where do you think those barriers still lie besides funding for research on why it's still so prevalent and more of a hush-hush disease?
0: Access, access to care is one of the, the biggest ones, you know, and, and the closing of academic medical centers. You know, if you really look at what's happening around the country, the places where we train the eating disorders, physicians and healthcare practitioners of the future are slowly being shrunken or closed. And that's a real problem because, you know, lots of people, anybody can hang up a shingle and say they treat eating disorders. You know, and I had patients send me lists of, these are the people who were in network, you know, in my area. I'm like, I don't recognize any of these people and none of them have any training in eating disorders. So, sure. And then who can afford to pay for out-of-pocket care? And Beth, you already mentioned, you know, I mean, dietitians and nutritional counseling is one of the fundamental pillars of eating disorders treatment. And if we can't pay for that, if a patient can't pay for that, they're not getting a central component of what they need to become well. So there are a lot of barriers,
1: unfortunately and i'm I'm thinking also bringing it back to the diversity piece in the worldwide piece that how much culture plays a role because of certain cultures view mental health diseases and body physiques in such different ways that to be able to reach them all is got to be difficult because it's a different curriculum and a different approach for each and every one.
0: Well, part of the problem is our workforce isn't very diverse. You know, mm-hmm. and, you know, we're, we're working on this right now. You know, we, we've got one of the things that we did this year is we have a summer fellowship every year and we usually bring two fellows into UNC this year with all of the racial problems that this country has encountered over the last couple of years. We specifically put out a call for people of color, first generation and DACA applicants, we were overwhelmed with the most amazing applicants who were interested in getting into this field, but otherwise didn't have a pathway in. So we dug up the money. We have nine fellows this summer. (laughs) So we've been like working like crazy, but it's like now we need to continue to support them. The pipeline has to start early. They need to see themselves in their mentors. So we need senior people in the field who are from diverse backgrounds, and we need to keep just supporting these people as they go through their their research and their clinical careers. But I'll tell you, putting that call out was so interesting because people are like, oh, you know, people of color aren't interested in working in eating disorders. I'm like, you better believe they are. They just don't see themselves in their mentors. So we Mm -hmm. need to make sure that we do better as a profession. I can get on all sorts of soapboxes if you put me back. No,
2: interview. we really are going to have to have you back. But I also think I would like to interview one of your fellows um, because I've, I, all areas and all entry levels into this field are just like, mm. so I have a question for you, Dr. Bulick, about the, the edgy and some of the limitations that you're running up against. I have a couple of mentees that are in Asia and I believe they said that that wasn't available there.
0: It will be soon. Oh. <laughs> so uh, actually, the, the, we're, we're working on getting Edgy Taiwan up and running. So that is one area in Asia. We've, we've also done, we have collaborators in Japan and in Korea. They're not officially part of Edgy, but they have contributed genetic samples to the sort of global eating disorders, genome-wide association studies. And that's another acronym you have to get used to, which is GWAS, so genome-wide association study. And we are part of a larger consortium called the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium, or PGC. And we're the eating disorder group, but there's also depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, substance use disorder, OCD, Tourette's. PTSD, I'm missing somebody. But you know, for me talking to you here about the eating disorders group, there's someone else talking about those other disorders and their organization is as large as ours is. So yes, we are working on expanding to other countries in Asia as well.
2: Yeah, well, I could really talk to you all day. And so I'm have to say, I'm grateful for your persistence and your passion. Dr. Bulek has gotten us as far as we have. And we, I mean, and, and those who are assisting you and fangirling you like myself. (laughs) So (laughs) if there's any way that I can help, I'm going to get the word out, obviously with this podcast episode and get everyone involved in edgy, every, every one of you who's listening, you professionals who are working with your client, please let them know that this is available because it will only help all of us in the future. We have within the dietetics profession just been approved. It's been a 20-year effort to approve some training for dietetics students on weight inclusivity because so many dietitians and dietetic students come out with a weight management approach right. which we all know in the eating disorders world can be harmful and so it's making those small it's it's been 20 years in the making and it's making those small changes that could hopefully put us out of business like you said right awesome okay well
1: oh, well can ahead. I just add something because both of you are amazing in my eyes and have been in this field for so long. And so I hear these things from you 20 years in the making. I've been persistent for 10 years before I got somewhere. So as someone newer like me, it sounds so overwhelming. How? What is your advice to keep that persistence going? Or where do we start just to make a little bit of a dent to keep that momentum up?
0: I think it comes down to just how much you care about your patients and your families. And every morning, remembering that the reason you're doing this is to help them to make their lives better, to keep someone else from having to go down these horrible paths. I mean, that's that's what keeps me going and doing advocacy work and working side by side with parents and patients and sort of breaking down those barriers between like researcher, clinician, parent, patient. We're advocate, you know, we are all in this fight together, and we support each other. And it's, it's that community and sense of shared purpose that gets me out of bed in the morning. What about you, Beth?
2: Yeah, I love that. And that's one reason I started this podcast is to make bite sized pieces. I know that there's so much out there that I could get my head into a bubble and just say, I can't do this. I mean, but what it is, Dr. Voss, and I that was such an awesome question, it's when I'm sitting across from my client, I may feel like a small person in this particular conversation, but I'm the biggest person in that moment in their eating disorder. And we together are the biggest combination. So it's it's foot you know rubber hits the road that's where it's going to happen and you do that every day Dr. Voss when you are meeting with your patients
1: it's a good reminder for us to keep especially as things become so overwhelming right now and like you said things have mushroomed so that's good advice from new seasoned yeah.
0: Seasoned. I like that. Call me seasoned. <laughs> That's what this is the seasoned
2: RD. And the ED is capitalized for eating disorder, registered dietitian, but it's it's we all have different levels of seasoning. And I do look at you, Dr. Voss, as a specialist and someone who I've learned so much from. So your level of seasoning has helped my level of seasoning and anyone just brand new and just in undergrad or graduate course class or even struggling with their own eating disorder they have levels of seasoning and we all get to help each other make this recipe an amazing an amazing dish (laughs) all right well thank you so much for joining us both you Dr. Voss and you Dr. Bulick
0: thank you so much for this conversation it's been lovely
1: yeah we really enjoyed it I learned a lot thank you
2: Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at BethHerald.com professionals.